my first waking conscious moment that I remember was probably about three days later. So I was admitted on the 16th. I think I was hit on the 16th. It was a Sunday. Sometime around Wednesday or Thursday, I'd already had surgery. I mean, they did my leg right away. They did my face. And then my back was coming up on like Thursday morning. And that morning that I woke up, there was a group of men that surrounded my bed that were from my home group in AA. And they were there bringing a meeting to me, bringing support to me. And and I can't explain what came out of my mouth other than I asked everybody to pray for the driver. And I was so adamant about regardless of what had happened, because I, I, here I am being told, like, they never caught this guy. We're looking for him. I mean, we're rattling our sabers trying to find this guy, right? I mean, and of course, I'm in just so much gratitude that people are out there on my behalf. But I had no interest in it, and I can't explain why. Uh, and all I felt was just a deep sense of compassion, because I, I just felt like there is nothing that I can say or do, I can't remember anything. And of course, all of you know Kelly's recollection was as, as the best that he could and what he could see. And so all I could do was just ask for forgiveness of this person. And it blew some people away. And I don't know where it came from. That was John Abate, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 91 of the YTP. We have a kicking show for you today. Let's see. Yup. We go deep again. Just like last week, we dive in full on with John as he shares his story of recovery in more ways than one, his journey to mindfulness and meditation, and his dominating curiosity of how these ancient practices can enhance athletic performance and the lives of athletes everywhere. We got great feedback on last week's show with BJ and I. So if you enjoyed that, you are going to be flying high as we dig in and go off the rails with a fierce competitor today. I can't wait to share the show with you. But first, I have to tell you that the YTP is sponsored by Health IQ, a life insurance agency that uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people, including runners, cyclists, yogis, vegans, and more. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. We always say do the work for the sake of the work and not for the reward, but that's not to say if there is something good for us in the end that we should walk away. Go to healthiq.com forward slash YTP to support the show and see if you qualify. You guys, thank you so much for your support of the show. Yogi Triathlete Holistic Performance is who we are, and this podcast is an extension of our mission to create a better world. Combining high-level athletics with mindfulness, meditation, plant-based nutrition, and the physical practice of yoga, we have athletes all over the world living this awake and ready life and changing the face of athleticism. Don't fret. You don't have to be all in or pre-qualified to work with us. If any of this interests you or you just want to get faster, then join the tribe. Our team is growing and we're accepting new athletes now. Thank you, everyone who has purchased the Yogi Triathlete Cookbook. We're getting incredible feedback on this book, and it's just amazing to see that the inspiration that came to me has been fulfilled with all of its intention. 
We've received so many comments and emails about the book, but the best one so far was at a book signing when a woman walked up to me and told me it was the first reasonable cookbook she's ever owned. She said that she started reading it and was like, yeah, okay, I get these people because they get me and I can do these recipes. So if you're digging the book, you guys, please leave a review on Amazon. We've got a few up there, but we would love a few hundred more because we know this book is worthy. Also, keep posting your photos and hashtagging Yogi Triathlete Cookbook. I saw a great one the other day from USAT President Barry Siff. Him and his wife, Jody are all in on the plant-based train, and he was one of the amazing people that reviewed and supplied a blurb of support for the book. I mean, USAT President, you guys, I cannot imagine a better cookbook for athletes. There's so much momentum happening right now at Yogi Triathlete, and we are signing on with new partners that we believe in. So you'll be hearing about more of those in the future. Our athletes are getting access to great discounts on gear from our team sponsors and companies that we believe in and use. One of those new partners is Thrive Market. We signed up with Thrive when we moved here to California, and it's a great place to buy the bulk of your groceries at a seriously discounted rate. The top organic and healthy products at wholesale prices, 25 to 50% off, and they ship straight to your door. The best thing about Thrive, though, besides the massive savings, is that with every membership that's purchased, they give one to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. What an easy way to be in service, you guys, in service of others while filling up your superfood stockpile. Go to the blog post in this episode and use the banner ad to get a 30-day risk-free trial. Absolutely no cost to save you a ton. Another company that we love so much is JoJ Bars, and today's guest, John Abate, is partners in this incredibly delicious bar company with YTP guest Jess Sarah from episode 78. If you haven't listened to our convo with Jess, go back and have a listen for sure. Her story is super powerful. It's so awesome to hear in this podcast that Jojay entered into 2018 with tons of gusto. And it's no wonder with these two super vibe athletes at the wheel and John heading up the business end of things, applying his mindfulness techniques to how he's growing the business. He shares a little bit about that and how it's affecting his professional life in our talk today. John is a total badass. Why? Not only is he a Cat 1 cyclist and a successful business owner who survived a near-death experience just a few years ago, he is living his life now through the lens of mindfulness and meditation. His curiosity is at an all-time high around the subject of consciousness, and although he repeatedly says that he's no expert, he's an extreme wealth of information and offers a depth to this conversation that is rare to come by. He shares his story today and his unhealthy relationship with substance. He talks about recovery and he revealed to us prior to the podcast that it's the first time he's talking about it publicly. He goes into detail about the horrific accident that almost took his life, and we are so extremely honored to be the messengers for his expression to be released into the world. John is a super special guy. He is the definition of someone who is tapping into their inner badass, and so without a moment longer, I give to you Joe J. Barr fanatic, master pro cyclist, and guru, John Abate. Let's get this party started. Yes. You're gonna talk about you're I gonna talk about sweet morning. cycling in San Diego. Yeah. Where did you go? I rode from Lucadia to Torrey Pines and then did my 
three repeats felt like a champ after the new year and I back love home that hill oh i know it's like two miles just like just enough right it's just the perfect amount yeah inside or outside what do you prefer what do you mean inside the park or outside oh i just do it right on the road yeah i haven't done it inside so the inside's good it's a little steeper a little shorter but you can't ride back down so you've got to ride across and then you come back down the road down to okay road. all yeah. right i'm gonna have to check that out check that out i just go right for like I get on the arrow up one time, then come down, and then I crank it out seated. Then yep. I come down, I just repeat arrow seated, arrow seated. I'll bet you and I have passed each other so many times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And haven't we met on the bike? I don't I think, don't think or so. Or any of the group rides? I don't think so, okay. because I'm always on my TT bike. It's, when, a, it's the only thing I have. Wednesday World. So, I don't, see, <laughs> so yeah. I don't see, I can't ride a mini packs, because Brody's, you know. Yeah. I just Brody's, don't want to like. We get in the way. <laughs> so I venture off on my own, but um, one day I'll come back to uh, road cycling. Yeah, yeah. But right now, committed. Yep. Yes. So yeah, good ride this morning. It was good. Yeah. It felt good. I, good. I have been low motivation. Gorgeous. Yeah, I've been low motivation since since the holidays. Well, hasn't been. Well, I guess it's been a little sunny because I was gonna say like it, it was gray there for a while. It yeah. Felt like, it was gray for like two days. We get to complain about two days of rain. I know. And, and you know what? Let's just lay it us. on. Let's lay it on right now. Yeah. It rained yeah. on Monday and um, Tuesday. Mm. It was brutal. And it was, a little, it was windy and it was, it was below <laughs> probably 60 degrees. <laughs> it was, it was awful. Oof. I was like dressed up like we, I was going to run on the tundra. <laughs> I almost like gave Clark a haircut and sewed it onto my jacket. I was so cold. <laughs> No, but that's why we live out here. Yeah. Are you originally from here? No, I grew up in Connecticut. Oh, I love it. Oh, so boy. many New Englanders yeah. out here. Yeah. And you're Rhode Island? Yeah. Well, I grew okay. up in I grew up in Cape Cod. Okay. And Beach grew up in Westport. Nice. Mass. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then um, most recently we lived in Newport, Rhode Island, which I'm, if you live in Connecticut, then you know Newport. Rhode Island is probably my favorite place outside of San Diego. I love Rhode Island. I love it. It's so beautiful. It's just that winter is like killer. Newport, Narragansett. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, of course, Block, Nantucket. Mm-hmm. Nantucket's mass, but yeah. I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I'm an East Coast East Coast boy at heart, no doubt I know, about but there's it. so many East Coasters out here. I yeah. Lo- it's just really fun. Well, it makes sense. You know, we're all packing up and we, we, we leave the ice scrapers and the, <laughs> yeah. and the, you know. We were the ones that, that were like, I have no interest in digging my heels in. Yeah. No, uh-uh. thank you. Mm-mm. I'm done. Mm-mm. I'm done. I, I had this Facebook memory the other day of me. It was like a selfie of me and it, and it said... Oh, this is my first two-pant, four-shirt, balaclava, <laughs> ski glove run of the season. And I was like, oh, that's horrible. Imagine. I remember that run, too. Yeah, yeah. I remember my shoulder being sore, like, from January until March, trying mm. to, like, get the door open in the morning. Oh, yeah. Because it would be frozen. Like, the house trying would to, be frozen shut. Trying to push all the snow from behind, you know, like, out of the oh, way. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Can you and imagine then, just, like, you, making a way, <laughs> making your way out the front door with just snow, like, you know. And if you were lucky enough to have a snowblower or a neighbor that had one, it would be, the path would be cleared, but otherwise you're just totally right. socked to- You know yeah. what? And that's the thing about New Englanders. Like, if they've got a snowblower and the neighbor doesn't, they're going to go over and they're going to blow that person's driveway oh, yeah. for them. They're yeah. just such beautiful, yeah. beautiful, giving, wonderful people Absolutely. that um, you don't want to get into a bar fight with. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So what brought you out here to San Diego? Hmm. So, let's see. I left Connecticut... After high school, made my way to Colorado. Yep, that's what we did. Yep. Uh, Fort Collins, Colorado State. Left 
there a year after I graduated in 96, moved up to the mountains for a year and then left there in 97. A stint back east, a stint abroad, came back to San Francisco in 98, came down here to visit in 99 and was hooked. And uh, San Fran was just a fleeting moment for me. I spent it a, a year up in San Francisco. Now, this is 98 or 99 when we had the really bad El Nino. So this was like months of just driving rain every day. And I worked as a bike messenger. So you can imagine I was ready to get the hell out of town. Yeah. I just was kind of fumbling around and needed a job. And so um, started with a hand-me-down bike and started working as a messenger. There's some hills in San Francisco. You think? <laughs> like the pitch is insane yeah. there. Oh, yeah, just yeah. running just, and walking. That's like going, a killer workout. Like just going from like downtown financial district to the top of California Street mm-hmm. is brutal. <laughs> brutal. And then it's raining. I'm just like, what the hell am I thinking? Yeah. What what was what was the 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 onus of you know this? But it was an amazing experience, San and Francisco's. I wasn't road cycling at the time. Was not in, was not a roadie. Was more like coming from like the mountain bike world. So I had a hybrid mountain bike with slick tires, and I got hit in the financial district. Mm-hmm. So my company sued the driver because he was uninsured and ran a red light. So I got a new bike, and had a, a relatively like crash-free winter, but then in the spring I got car doored on Market Street and got sent to the hospital. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, this is not the path or the career that I'm ready for. Although I thought it was pretty cool doing it. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. would call we would call that resistance. Like, <laughs> like you know, you try and do something, you just it's just not working out. It's like, it's all right, not. I need to pause. It's not, and I need to just. It does this feel right? Yeah, and I really wanted it to because it was really a, like a hip, cool job to have. You know, you were uh, considered kind of like the counterculture of cyclists and. It was just an amazing time. It was an amazing experience, but one that I would highly not recommend unless you're like early 20s, you can bounce off the street, get back at it quickly yeah. and, and call it. Yeah. Well, mountain, being a mountain biker, it's like perfect training for mm. that kind of thing. Absolutely. Because it's just red line, red line, red line. Yeah. And then... And bike handling. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I love San Fran. Mm-hmm. We spent a little time up there when we were searching for our home, but it was, it was too cold. Yeah. It was too cold. But I love it. It felt to me... And not everybody agrees with this. Uh, it felt to me like the New York City of the West. It was just such a, they're, they're very, they're different cities, but just in its, it's just got such a grand nature to it. It's got a lot of energy up yes. there, a lot of power. Yes. Um, the architecture, of course, is just magnificent. Yes. Um, the landscape is gorgeous. The parks, I mean, it's just, I just loved how powerful it felt. There is a great feel up there, and I agree with you. The energy does feel powerful. There's something expansive, I think, just about being in the West as compared to the East. Oh, absolutely. So when you're at back East, it's it's it feels more enclosed. The streets are smaller. There's a lot more trees. It's just less vast. When you get out to the West, and as I did when I moved from Colorado, of course, being vast to San Francisco, I still felt that, especially being by the ocean. I've always felt like San Francisco was a great city of neighborhoods, as opposed to New York, which is just Gotham, like a metropolis, you know? So, I mean, I feel like there are some similarities, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, about, like, like there's this. a lot of individuality to there them There really as well. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super yeah. creative. The different districts. Where like we, we were, yeah. we, were we were staying in the Richmond district. Richmond's, Richmond's great. So that's the outer area. Yeah, yeah right I up. In, I live in the Mission. Okay. Yeah, okay. We went to dinner yeah. down there, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, I think we had a friend yeah. in the Mission. Yeah. Um, 
but it was uh, we had a lot of fun, and we were right near Golden Gate Park, so, so great so running pretty. in there, and Buffalo, and mm. so we agree on the whole San Diego thing because yeah. what I mean, San Diego just has this like chill mm. feel yeah. to it, yeah. and even I've got a friend up in Orange County that I go up to see mm. often, and even when I cross over to Orange County, I just feel that ener- energy change. And of course, I'm pretty sensitive to energy, but yep. there's something about San Diego, and I'm sure it's just it's the match, it's the energy match that yeah. felt really good to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, we've got the North County and the sleepy little beach towns, and you get down to the city. I'm using air quotes here, and so it does feel a bit like we're outside of the bubble. And I feel like I can get a little bit of culture, but if I were to have anything, I would keep it back up here in North County for me, because I feel the energy living in Omsinitas and you know <laughs> having all this. I right? love Encinitas. Yeah, yeah so, I love that yeah. whole area. Yeah. We tried to live there. Yeah, yeah. We it tried, and it yeah. just we never we didn't we put it out there, and we were totally unattached. Yep. We were just like, all right, let's just put it out there. We kept putting it out there, putting it out there, putting it out there, and it just didn't come back. And mm. then this little place that we're sitting in now like, just reached out and grabbed us. I and, wouldn't trade it. You got a great little spot. Here. Yeah, and within yeah. like twenty four hours, <laughs> we were like, all right. And nothing on paper made sense that Mm-mm. we should be able to live here. Mm-mm. We didn't. We didn't really have any income. We had a little bit. We had a couple athletes and stuff, but nothing. Like, but it, that's flow, right? That's flow. Yeah. Like when things in life happen, that if you were to write it down on paper, it would be like, no way, we're not going to give this place to these people. <laughs> yeah, and it right. was like the woman was like possessed. She was like, so when do you want to move in? I'm like, this is crazy. I'm like, tomorrow, tomorrow. before you like really take a good look yeah. at things. Yeah. Then you're just like, let's look at the place one more time. She really wants us in here bad. Where <laughs> like, is she hiding? You heard that yeah. we're living out of our car, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. I love it here. So you've been here for how long? Since 99. Oh, wow. 18 years, 19, oh, wow. 18, okay. 19 years. Yeah. Yeah. This is home. Family's all families all on the East Coast, so I get back as much as I can because, like I said, I'm I'm still an East Coast boy mm-hmm. at heart. You know, yeah, I you still, don't lose that. Uh, you don't. No, I but love it. This though. is home, but this is home. Yeah, I love it. Who were just talking to somebody about that, like the East Coast, and it's like you know I can kind of I hang with it, and then if I need it, I know I can pull it out. Yeah, <laughs> push comes to shove, nobody's gonna mess with me. It sounds yeah. It sounds like <laughs> no lack of confidence on that side. Of whoever you were talking to, I like that. I'm going to use that one next time. So how did um, cycling come in? Uh, Besides being like in this, one of the cycling capitals. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think just through osmosis, just seeing everyone out on the roads and looking, looking in the mirror and saying, okay, I'm probably 20, 25 pounds overweight, was drinking a lot, just kind of uh, just not in a good place in my life. And so I uh, had the messenger bike in the garage, dusted it off, and just started riding from Oceanside at the time. I lived in Oceanside. And I would just get on the bike path, you know, avoid the 76, get on the bike path down to Carlsbad. And I'd turn around. And then the next ride, I'd ride down to Encinitas, turn around. And then I thought, Oceanside to Cardiff, it, it might as well have been like a grand tour stage. You know, like <laughs> it felt huge to me. And of course, I'd go home and just like eat everything that I could find thinking like, Oh my goodness, you know, this is huge, but it just kept evolving, you know? And I, and I, and I joined a local club and they had a race team and I decided I'd give it a shot. So this is going back to 2011. So in 11, I did my first race, just one race that year. And then 2012, I just jumped right in, started as a cat five, worked my way up to like a two in, in a season. And then I got my cat one. There was a local pro team here in town that said get your cat one racing license and you can join the team and 
I was off and running. And so then I spent a little bit of time just, you know, kind of riding as a support rider for, I had found cycling in, in, older, you know, I was definitely beyond the prime of a, of a road cyclist or, uh, I think I was maybe in my early 30s, maybe 33, 34 when I found it. So right out of the chute, I was already a fast master, you know. And so I did the category racing and had some fun doing the, you know, the elite Cat 1 stuff and then jumped in and started racing masters, which might as well be like pro racing in some respects. Those guys are still <laughs> solid still, and fast yeah, and strong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, like to, we like to term the coin master pro. <laughs> You know, it's like you just won't give it up, you know, but it's still fun and it's super competitive. Yeah. yeah. Who do you ride? Do you ride still on a team now? I do. The, the team was formerly called Surf City Cyclery. Uh-huh. And so they've changed since the last season or so. They've changed the name to Methods to Winning. So there's two individuals on the team now that are the team captains, well-known criterium racers, Rasan Bahati, Sharon Smith. And so they formed a company or LLC or an organization called Methods to Winning. And it's the idea behind it. And I hope I'm doing this justice. But the idea behind it is to bring cycling to the inner city, to youth, to develop. So we brought, <clears throat> we brought four or five U25, under 25 riders onto our team. And so we've been predominantly known as an elite slash masters team. So now we've got this great group of under 25 riders that we can work with mentor so that they can have their shot you know and going pro so it's going to be a fantastic year there's going to be a lot of motivation for us to race not only for the team but also for the younger guys showing them how to you know just what it takes to be a part of a team and what it takes to win and what all the things that go into the aspect of team racing. So, and there's enough experience on our team. I mean, there's probably eight or 10 of us that have been racing for, you know, most of the guys have been racing for, you know, over a decade or more. So it's going to be exciting. I think that's so valuable. Yeah. You know, we've had some young athletes, really talented athletes on this podcast. And I think, you know, being in my mid forties, you get, you get wisdom, you, you know, do. and I know that we have people in their fifties and their sixties that listen to this and they're probably giggling because they know <laughs> that even more is coming. Just you wait. But man, when I was like yeah. the age of some of these young athletes that we've had, I mean, first of all, I was completely, I mean, I was in like a, a leotard and a thong and I was like kicking people <laughs> out of the front row in aerobics. I was not like a team player <laughs> at all, right. uh, let alone an elite athlete. Yeah. But just the wisdom of everything that you were talking about. Mm. And I think everything that you were just talking about, if you were to list it all, the physical would be kind of a small piece of that. It sure it's like is. working as a team. It sure what does is. it take to win? Yeah. yeah, it's the physical, but it's so much more yeah. than the physical. And what a great opportunity that these guys have yeah. to learn from you. Yeah, oh yeah. My the, God. the team dynamic is, is, I mean, it plays such a huge role in success. And it's often said, in, in, especially in road cycling, I mean, we couldn't say this for triathlon, but certainly in road cycling, that the strongest man or woman in the peloton or in the bunch does not win the bike race. You know, it has to do, it comes down to, of course, a lot of things, tactics, how your team's working, what the plan is, are you racing to the plan, will you execute the plan, just staying on track of a plan and not, you know, I mean, it's good to be able to have a few, you know, 
um, cards up your sleeve, so to speak, and we can do that in road cycling. But for the most part, if you have a if you have a plan, you race to it. And if you don't win and you race to the plan, then you still succeeded because you've executed. You've executed, mm-hmm. and there's so many other things that can go wrong in a bike race. So these are things that we hope to bring to them. Execution I mean, is huge. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And, and we look at that a lot with our athletes, and you know, going over their races afterwards. You know, BJ and I will talk about them, and then BJ talks to his athletes about them. But looking at that execution, mm-hmm. you know, the swim to the bike to the to the run, and it's yeah. always like you want to finish that run so so strong. And what it doesn't matter what the finish time is. It's like how how did that, how did that day progress for yep. you? Yep. You know, did you blow it out on the swim? Cause we've seen that, which mm. is seems seemingly impossible, but we've seen it before. You mm. just blow it out on the swim and, and then the so bike behind. and then, yeah. And then you, yeah. yeah. Blow and then it out you, more, more so on the bike. Like I'm a bike. I'm, oh, a cyclist, of course. So I'm yeah. gonna go as hard as I can yeah. and then yeah. we'll get on the run and I'll keep my lead. And yeah. it's, it's, it doesn't work. Well, it's yeah. a, com- it's a commitment. It's a, just having that, that commitment, I think is more than anything and understanding that, you know, it's a sum of all its parts, right? And so, yeah. mm-hmm. and that can be in your sport, in our sport, et cetera. So, yeah. And being yeah. able to <clears throat> hold back when mm. you are supposed to hold that, back. Tell any athlete is, to hold back. Oh my God. It's oh, so it's huge. Yeah. It's so huge. So, uh, and I know that, mm. I mean, I'm so like on the brink of just diving into the mindfulness thing, but I yeah. want to back it up a little bit. Sure. You're living in Oceanside and you're riding your commuter bike and Cardiff feels like a million miles away. Right. You're not in a good space, but you're now you move into cycling and mm-hmm. now all of a sudden you're cat one. So I'm going to make the assumption that something happened between Oceanside and you racing cat one on this team um, that, you know, with your, your lifestyle habits changed. Yeah. So ironically, my lifestyle habits never really changed during this time. <laughs> I was able to kind of manage. I loved the party. Love drinking. Oh, I get you, man. You know, I mean, it was like I couldn't ride enough miles to burn enough calories so that I could pack full of IPAs afterwards. Oh, IPA is my favorite. You know, right? Mm-hmm. And so we live in the IPA capital <laughs> of the world, of course, now. And so, but this is going back a few years. So I did have this period of time where... um I had an an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but it took several years, several years to realize that I was straddling this precipice of, let's just say the control was being lost and I'm all about control. I've always been that way. And that's my ego, right? And so I got sober and that happened just a little over two and a half years ago. So there was a long period of time where, you know, I mean, the business never suffered. I want to say that the racing never suffered. You know, I mean, I was a master at just kind of controlling, you know, but it was, it was chaos out of control, you know, in my mind and the way that I had thought about myself and my relationships and things like this. Mm. And I let alcohol be sort of that, buffer between actually just feeling the feelings mm-hmm. you know and just living you know you you wear a mask you know you're, you're out there just you know kind of winging it doing the best you can and at the end of the day it's just a turn of the dial either left or right in the in the right way and for me that turn of the dial was finding aa and getting sober and so that happened yeah it happened about two and a half years ago a little less than that and I think that our awareness is somebody who's definitely used substances 
to a point where I wore the mask. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a lot going on behind the scenes. Yes. I was a master at keeping the storefront nice and clean. I like that. Mm-hmm. Keeping the storefront nice uh-huh. and clean. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. you would want a window shop at that store, but yeah. you wouldn't want to go in the storeroom. Yeah, inventory scattered everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Like, can't find a sales clerk. Stealing from myself. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it was it was years of of the awareness mm. that I knew there was another way, but it's I hadn't hit the exhaustion of of like Okay, I'm done. Yeah. I hadn't hit that exhaustion yet. Yeah. And so I think it, it's, I think it's, in, we've been talking a lot about this lately, this idea of like exhausting a path, mm. exhausting a behavior pattern, mm. even if we know mm. it's not in our highest good, but exhausting it until we gain enough clarity of saying, I'm done. Like, who, I'm getting, we've done so many podcasts in the last two weeks. I was just talking to someone about like, you get backed into a corner. I can't yeah, remember. Can't Maybe, remember. I might have, yeah. That might have been in a dream last night. Yeah. But you get yourself into, at least I, like, I felt like I was just in a corner and I was like, all right, there's no, I can't backpedal anymore. Yeah. It's time to move forward. Yeah. For me, it was mindfulness and meditation mm. that just started to raise my vibration where all of that, so it fell away just so naturally, like smoking pot and, and drinking. Yeah. And never doing any of it to a point where anybody would say you have a problem. But yeah. again, there was a lot going on behind the scenes that was very, very dysfunctional and mm. unhealthy. That's right. Yeah, that probably yeah. BJ doesn't even know about. Well, and I think too. I mean, you know, to, 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 I, I like I like the um, the metaphor of being backed into a corner. But you know, for me, so you know, you look at the twelve steps of AA, and for me, I like to say that there's step zero. And I actually heard this from in a meeting once. There was a <clears throat> a very wise elderly woman and she was probably in her late 70s early 80s and for what she had said was for her she got to step zero which this shit has to stop and that's and i really related to that you know i mean yeah on the surface i mean everything seemed to a okay and i've actually had some friends that have said really like i know you like to party a little bit and drink but really so it's just i think it's just all in relation to how we feel about ourselves on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-to-moment basis. I mean, let alone you put anything inside your system. I mean, even just living cleanly, you're living a life of this constant reverberation of thought, feeling, and emotion. I mean, sit quietly for, you know, I challenge you to sit quietly for 10 minutes without mindfulness and, and just, you know, see where your mind, see where it takes you. And we live in this kind of default mode network where we're just, we're continuing to just think and think and think. And now you put substance into the mix and, you know, you can create quite the storm. So, yeah, so that's where I got to. I mean, I, I, I and through the path of recovery, which for me was absolutely key in healing from an accident that I had back in August of 2016. But it also got me down a path of actually creating a consciousness with a higher power, which opens up spirituality, which opens up more of the ability to see myself in every moment. And what does that mean for me? And how do I get there? And for me, I've learned that getting there is through prayer and meditation, heavily on the meditation, you know, and almost 
you know, I think the two can be synonymous with. If I am sending out kindness and love through meta, it's saying a prayer. I'm, you know, I'm saying a prayer for someone, you know, and so I don't have to speak to a God or some type of deity in order to do that. So, but we can get into all that. Well, stuff yeah. Too. Now yeah. it's the opportunity though, because we keep coming across these changes in people and the changes happen because of pain or loss or something extremely devastating in someone's life. And then we change. Right. But now what I'm seeing is we have the tools and you have the tools now to help these people even before they get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, so, I mean, if we're living our happiest moments, I mean, we're not thinking about how am I going to change this? I mean, we're going to no. stay right where we are to your point. You know, I mean, it takes something, I feel like for me, um, it took something of this, this is enough. You know, I mean, I'm just looking at patterns in my life. I'm looking at, I mean, of course, just discursive thought, not feeling as though I, what my true nature should be in the real John, you know, and living, you know, mindfully and speaking from the heart and telling the truth and doing all these things that just the human condition sometimes doesn't allow us to do without looking at it. So I'm reminded of that through the program, you know, and that helps you a good deal in just keeping things together, you know, and then that can lead you down the path of mindfulness and meditation. You know, I like to do my yoga. I like to find myself meditating if I'm walking or if I'm on the bike or if I'm backpacking, you know. It gets, it just yeah. gets to be like, that's where I want to be. That's where I want. That's be. where I want to be. And choose like to be when there. I'm you, out. Yeah, you do. When yeah. I'm out running and I'm doing. We just got back from doing hill repeats and running hard up a hill mm. and being able to touch that foundation <clears throat> of calm yep. that lies beneath all the chaos as I'm as I'm pushing my body so hard yep. and just feeling like I'm kind of I'm like a step back watching it all. Yeah. It's such an amazing. Um, position mm. to have developed mm. and knowing and I know so well that it's within all of us and we all have this yeah. ability but it's a practice as you know yeah. so I want to back up again um, so you're cycling and you had mentioned an accident and I, yeah. I I believe that Jess, Sarah, you're very, very good. I call you guys soulmates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're definitely soul partners in this life. And yes. you're her partner in JoJ. That's right. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about where JoJ is. I want to touch upon that too. But cool. she had mentioned that you were in a pretty serious bike accident. And I'm I assuming was. that's the one you're talking about. I was. Yeah, I was hit on... Um, I was hit on... Uh, the bike, in the bike lane, by a car, back in August of 2016. And I was riding with a friend of mine. Um, if it weren't for him, I don't know that I'd be here today. So, you know, just I'll give you the kind of the, I'll give you the, the bullet points of the accident um, so we can have some frame of reference for where I came from because I think it's important as we talk more about mindfulness and um, pain and, and trauma and things like that, physical. So I was hit from behind on the Katy Boulevard up at the top of the hill by Quail Gardens Road. Uh, they suspect he was driving somewhere between 50 and 60 miles an hour. Which is extremely fast for that road. Very fast for any of the secondary streets in, in, in Encinitas, anywhere, I would imagine. Um, I was thrown from the bike about 40, 45 feet from the bike. 
when I landed, I broke just about everything. You know, I shattered my leg. I broke my back, you know, just completely just out. So by the time my friend Kelly got to me, <clears throat> I think he thought I was dead. Um, I was completely unconscious, full of blood. My face, I broke some some bones in my face. And so, of course, I looked like a mess. Um, had a compound leg fracture, so my bone's sticking out of my leg. I mean, the poor guy, I mean, you know, he's looking at me. And, and so... And all of that, he's trying to corral the, the driver because the driver had basically stopped about 150 yards down the hill. So I, I was hit basically at the apex of the top of the hill. And so he had stopped. You know, Kelly's trying to wave him on to come by and help, and he took off. So the driver left. It was a hit and run. Um, God, I sp- he had that moment. He, he had, had that, that moment. moment when he stopped. He had that opportunity. He or she. We, we don't know, right? He, it was he a he was because he did identify. Like he it. had a it moment. Was a, yep. That was a life. Yeah. That's yeah. a heavy burden. Yeah. But I don't know how it ends. So Yeah. yeah. Whew, that's a. Yeah. So yikes. spent uh, about, I think, seven days in the ER. It you know, was sent to. Uh, Scripps in La Jolla, then moved on to a uh, Kaiser facility and, you know, had a series of operations, had my spine fused. I'm, I'm fused from T12 to L3, so I have five levels of the spine that are fused. I had a leg, um, a, a, um, uh, a rod uh, put in for my tib-fib fracture, so I have a rod in there. Um, and then, you know, just ribs. I lacerated my liver. I had internal bleeding. I had I had three different surgeons working on me, not all at the same time in unison, but it was, it was kind of interesting because I was, uh, in some way, shape or form, I think I was judging each one of their bedside manner, you know, and I was like, well, this one's pretty good. Well, this one's even better. By the time the neurologist got to me, I mean, he was just like, okay, we are going to totally fix you up and thank goodness you're in such great shape. Cause I was just getting ready to go back East and do a, a stage race in Vermont. And so, I mean, that in and of itself is the benefit of staying healthy and staying strong. You know, I mean, every single doctor and nurse that I spoke to in the time that I was in the hospital had said, hey, without the the physical fitness that you're in, we don't know how you would have survived this. I mean, the trauma was so much. When you were hit, do you remember when you landed or were landing? Yeah, I don't have any recollection of any of the accident other than what I think might have been a fleeting moment of impact so i i I, and i don't really know if that's even a if if that's even a conscious thought that i have in memory or something that i may have just thought what it must have been like but i do remember i was in mid-sentence i was kelly tells me i was in mid-sentence we were just talking about how beautiful the golf course is with all the yeah. All the dew on the grass and the the lake and the sun was up and it was a clear day and and it was just like you were mid sentence. He said it was so eerie and then you were shot out of a cannon is kind of how he had said it and he's telling me this in the hospital you know and so so I'm I'm recounting the accident through the eyes of another person you know and so you can imagine I'm trying to put things together and so. It's in your subconscious, though. The subconscious records it all. It does. It's there. So I think those fleeting that glimpse or whatever you're getting is definitely it's part of in there. But that, man, yeah. that is the nervous system at yeah. its best, right yeah. there, just shutting off like mm-hmm. those. Because when it gets too much, our body will protect us in that way. It shuts it down. Yeah, it shuts it's it down so from amazing. just trauma and pain and everything like that. I mean, um, what has led me to a lot of what we'll talk about. Um, 
was my first waking conscious moment that I remember was probably about three days later. So I was admitted on the 16th. I think I was hit on the 16th. It was a Sunday. Sometime around Wednesday or Thursday, I'd already had surgery. I mean, they did my leg right away. They did my face. And then my back was coming up on like Thursday morning. And that morning that I woke up, there was a group of men that surrounded my bed that were from my home group in AA. And they were there bringing a meeting to me, bringing support to me. And and I can't explain what came out of my mouth other than I asked everybody to pray for the driver. And I was so adamant about regardless of what had happened, because I, I, here I am being told, like, they never caught this guy. We're looking for him. I mean, we're rattling our sabers trying to find this guy, right? I mean, and of course, I mean, just so much gratitude that people are out there on my behalf. But I had no interest in it, and I can't explain why. Uh, and all I felt was just a deep sense of compassion, because I, I just felt like there is nothing that I can say or do, I can't remember anything. And of course, all of, you know, Kelly's recollection was as as the best that he could and what he could see. And so all I could do was just ask for forgiveness of this person. And it blew some people away. And I don't know where it came from. I mean, you know, you can't just say, well, you're just a nice guy, John. You know, I mean, no, I that had that came a, from something right. very, that it, came from who, that came from you, it, like who you truly are. It, it, I think it came from, yeah. I mean, understanding that forgiveness is the path to less suffering. And, um, and, and so a lot of this sounds, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it sounds very, um, you know, existential or metaphysical. I mean, I can't explain it other than it set me down a path that I think has truly changed my life and the way that I look at things and my relationships and people and what it means to be compassionate. What what does it mean to have empathy? Yeah. So you were already in the program at this point. I was sounds. in the program. And that, and I, and I don't, I've never been to AA, but it's, it's from what I know of it, it is has a spirituality angle to it. Absolutely. And um, here you are already being introduced to it. That's right. You have this traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. You come out of it mm-hmm. praying for forgiveness for the driver, for not only for yourself, but everyone around you, because you know that people are angry that this happened. Right. And so <clears throat> and there's a lot of, of power in that collective. Yeah. And in forgiveness, there's so much healing. There is. Like you said, the end of suffering. Yeah. So... Where does it take you next? Because yeah. you have just been jet-setted onto this path. Yeah, yeah. When I got home, couldn't walk for about six weeks. Jess took great yeah, care of me. Yeah, let's give Jess Sarah a little, yeah. little shout-out. Jess, uh, she was She's my amazing. absolute angel. I mean, she was the angel on my side. You know, I mean, um, you know, and she knows how extremely grateful I am for her. You know, and it was, um, it was you know, the experience was it was uh, tough for the first six weeks. I couldn't walk. You know, I'm putting no pressure on my leg whatsoever. My back, I mean, I was just in a lot of pain, you know. And so pain meds only work for so long. And, you know, you've got to kind of figure out how you're going to deal with the pain. And um, I remember being very optimistic, very 
in, in, a, in a place of contentment. I had no fear about the future. I had no dissatisfaction in thinking that I may never ride my bike again, let alone race. I had a very clear idea of where I was going to be. I just needed to figure out how to do it. And so that led me, the moment that I was able to be on my own and start walking, I started meditating deeply and meditating on, mostly meditating on um, how I could utilize energy to heal my body. And so I, by no, let me couch all of these statements by saying I'm, I'm, I haven't spent years in a cave in Nepal. I haven't gone on long meditation retreats, although I'm getting ready to do my first one, not in a cave in Nepal, but in February I'll do one. I, you know, I didn't bring a whole, a, a great deal of understanding. I just picked up some books and started reading and looking online and I'd already been meditating. So to your point, Jess, I, you know, with AA, it brought that spiritual component of prayer and meditation into my life. And I have, again, a deep sense of gratitude for the program and the people in the program. <clears throat> and so I started going to Swami's, so to, to SRF, to the meditation gardens. Oh my God, so, it's so, so magic. I mean, yeah. it's hard. When I finish a meditation there, it's hard for me to, to like move because yeah. the grounds are so powerful. They really They're are. so energetic There's there. some energy there. There Oof. really is some energy there. So if anyone's not familiar with what we're talking about, we're talking about the Self-Realization Fellowship in Encinitas, founded by Paramahansa Yogananda um, in the 30s, you know, his ashram. Uh, is there you can visit it's free it's open to the public tuesday through sunday nine to five <laughs> please do not speak while you're in there speak with a soft voice because that tries my patience and tolerance <laughs> if i find you there speaking out loud you're going to see the other side of the uh, no, no but anyway uh so so that's where i was and you know as you know when you walk into the gardens you've got this long series of steps and so every time i'd go i'd you know i'd be able to take another step. I mean, that proverbial next step, right? And so I'd find that like I'd meditate down closer to the grounds on the side benches there and all the way to when I could get all the way up to the top and be looking out at the ocean. And I didn't miss a day. I mean, I, I was on disability for four months, wasn't working, um, was able to just focus on mindfulness and healing through meditation. And of course, doing all of the things that the doctors and the PTs are telling you to do. You know, I mean, I didn't magically heal. I mean, I still had to do the hard work. But the idea that I could use something innate in all of us, which is just simply sitting quietly, it's as easy as that. I mean, there is no membership card that you need to apply for for meditation. There's no doctrines you need to read and be, you know, brought into the fold of the group. No secret handshakes. It's a matter of simply being aware of the thoughts that come into your mind and leave. And that awareness is where you can focus on finding consciousness. And so I started really trying to understand the things about what it is to be conscious, what it is to be mindful. 
And I had an experience, I just want to backtrack real quick. I had an experience in the hospital and it's only come to me recently as I've started to learn about consciousness. And um, I was put under a general anesthesia for all of my uh, operations. But the one that stuck with me the most is when I had my spinal fusion. And when I got, when I was fused, um, I remember going under but when I came out I had an experience that I can't explain to you other than it was an incredibly dark scary traumatic experience coming out of a general anesthesia but the idea that you could literally bring the brain level down to a point where you're practically dead and then bring you back to life is an amazing thing, just speaking mm -hmm. you know, of modern science. But I started to think about, well, what was it that was, what were those emotions? I mean, I was kicking and screaming. I didn't know where I was. I had lost all perception of time. And I know that these are just kind of general markers for anesthesia, but it was this experience that I had never, and I'd been under, I have been under anesthesia before and I didn't have this experience. So it got me thinking about, what it is about what is it about consciousness and what is it about our minds and our brains that we can turn the lights on or we can turn the lights off i mean to be conscious is simply to know that the lights are on i mean if you had to ask what is consciousness you know i mean it is it's it's a, it's a phenomenal experience that we have and i've heard it talked about in a lot of different ways you know from physicists to philosophers and, and one of my favorite um, is a physicist. His name is Max Tegmark, if you're familiar with him. And he says that he starts with matter and says that matter is essentially the arrangement of particles, neutrons, atoms, electrons, quarks, and whatever. And if you take an emergent phenomenon such as consciousness, and the emergent idea is that it sits above and beyond the substrate or the mind, and that we start to talk about his theory is that simply it's just a matter of how things are set in patterns. And it's a really interesting way of looking at consciousness. There's nothing to say that we're different than this, this can, this, this mug. There's nothing to say that we're different other than the arrangement of the particles in which we live. You know, and they give he gives an example of you know what is a what 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 breathes life into a like let's say we have a, a, a bug, a dead bug. Is there some life force or spirit or gravitas that makes that bug alive or dead? No, it's just the arrangement of particles. And so this idea of consciousness really started to like hold true with me. And I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about the experience of literally like feeling like I was coming back to life. So anyway, a bit discursive there, but I just wanted to kind of like touch on that because it's interesting to me in the experience that I've had you know, it, it sent me down a path of starting to think about these things more deeply. And it was important to do that, to understand, because I was hearing like, you're, you're healing so quickly and the, like, and just the way that you're healing and your mindset, what is it? What are you doing? And I could really only point to one thing, which was just looking inside my, my mind. Yeah, you yeah. were you were rearranging the arrangement. I was rearranging towards health mm -hmm. is what you were doing. I yep. mean, and this is this is Einstein's work. Yep. Einstein, a lot of people don't realize, was a a master yogi. Absolutely, he was a master yogi. Absolutely. And this countertop 
is energy. It's and just energy and matter. This arm is just energy. You know, it's just it's all these yep. different arrangements, different densities. Yep. But everything is energy, yep. and I've just hit this new level. Because um, as you know, you just you keep hitting new levels. It's called going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, you hit new <laughs> levels, like, and all of a sudden they come in. You're like, yeah. oh, that's what it means to be present. Yeah. Well, I've hit this new level where, you know, I've always looked at, let's say I've looked at a, a tree mm. as being very abundant mm. for a very long time. Yep. I think about the rings like within it and how it grows from the inside out. Well, and, and, that, the and that would go along and that would go along the Buddhist tenets of everything is interconnected in itself. Yes. So when you look at a tree, you're actually seeing roots and sunshine and rain yes. and the insects that feed off of it. Yeah, and so, and I would look up and I would see, I would say, gosh, look at all that abundance. Look at all those mm -hmm. leaves. Well, mm -hmm. now what's happening is that, dog, what I was saying, sometimes I go off the rails. Yeah. Now what's happening is that when I see those leaves, mm -hmm. I'm seeing a layer underneath sure. that what most people would see as a leaf. I'm now seeing this arrangement of energy yeah. and these moving parts yeah. and it's really crazy yeah. and it's so wild and I love it yeah. because I'm like, whoa, I just hit a whole new level yeah. of consciousness. Well, then I would send you down the Tegmark uh, rabbit hole because I mean, it's really interesting. And so Tegmark, you know, talks about the arrangement of, like I said, it, you know, it's, it's the pattern of the particles that make the difference. And so that's where consciousness sort of lives. And so he refers back to also to David Chalmers, who is, a philosopher who talks about the easy and the hard problems of consciousness. And so the easy problems of consciousness are simply that we're able to extrapolate information and do math and science, and I can utilize my visual cortex to see you in front of me. The hard problem of consciousness is the subjective idea and the feeling of what it is like and the phenomenon of consciousness. And so the, he, posi he posits that the hard problem of consciousness is not simply, I mean, for eons, we've been attempting Plato and, you know, it just goes back for eons that we've been attempting to answer a question that continues to just baffle us. So if you find that you're looking to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I you like could, this guy. You could look at Chalmers and these two and these two correlates. So I have a question. So you're yep. going up to SRF and you're meditating mm. and you're healing like mm. faster than maybe they had predicted. Yeah. I think people are going to be curious as to like, well, what are you doing? Yeah. How, what are you doing in those meditations yeah. to heal? Yeah. Like, and I love that you, you, it just feels very, like it was very organic mm. for you. Like you didn't have like a formal, okay, this is how you heal injury mm. through mm. meditation. So yeah. what were you doing yeah. in those meditations? Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of trial and error, right? So, I mean, I would sit for as long as I could. So, I mean, the idea of meditation, of course, is to simply just sit comfortably where you can experience the least amount of pain. So we don't need to all sit like yogis. For me, if I cross my legs for too long, my knee starts to tweak, my ankle, you know, and these totally. Things. So You're not so propped up. So yeah. not, oh my god, you should see me. I look Got like a block. I'm, you have a block under oh your butt. Oh my god, yeah. I have like a yeah. meditation pillow behind yeah. my back, one yeah. under my knees. Yeah. I'm on two pillows, but this is I found this yeah. is a way where I can keep my spine erect. That's right. So athlete bodies, like I, I mean. I actually injured myself sitting in like Lotus for, for a couple years Did you really? and had like ended up with a sartorius injury oh boy. that I'm, I'm on the other side of now, yeah. but yeah, it's hard. So, yeah. so anyway, go yeah. on. It yeah. doesn't have to be like, yeah, I mean, you don't have to necessarily be playing the part or looking the part, but just sit comfortably feet on the ground, your hands either at your side at the fold of your, you know, your waist 
in your abdomen or on your knees, spine erect, your head on an equal axis, not hanging forward or sitting too far back, just sitting comfortably where you can begin to breathe and breathe naturally. So I like to take a couple of cleansing breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. If anyone does yoga, they'll understand that that's kind of a yogic way of cleansing. And then just simply sitting quietly with the intention of having energy entering at the top of my skull and into my spine through the chakras. And for me, what I would do is just, and I, and I would sit maybe for five minutes before, of course, you know, then I would get distracted or, you know, whatever it might be, but I would build up each time more and more, try to just sit for a little longer, but I would just envision clear light, just white light, you know, eyes closed, maybe just not straining the eyes, but just looking up to the third eye and just envisioning white light, healing white light coming in to the top of my skull, down through my spine and into my body. I didn't feel any sensations. I wasn't tingly, you know, anything like this. And it just seemed to be working. I mean, I was just feeling better and better. And I was not so much the physical aspects of it, but also just the conscious aspects that I was, that I was seeing, the, the benefits of just starting to realize that it's okay to look at thoughts as they come into the mind and they leave. I started picturing a blue sky with big white puffy clouds and those clouds were my thoughts as they came into the mind. The winds of top would take them out of the mind. And that's a nice practice to think about when you're, when you're sitting in meditation is to look at the thoughts. And so it's a common misnomer that we have to sit in meditation with no thought. And that's really not what mindfulness meditation is about. It's about an awareness, a non-judgmental, non-discursive awareness of thoughts. And if you can continue on that path, then you start to see the true gems of meditation, which are the gaps in consciousness. Those moments within your meditation where there's literally just the self drops out. It just everything drops out. Buddhists or other contemplatives might say it's enlightenment or, you know, nirvana or whatever you want to call it. But it's, it, it, you know, it, for me, I had to, I had to do what felt good to me and it just felt good. And I can't tell you that mindfulness meditation he, healed my, my pain or anything like that. I mean, there's a great book out now called Altered Traits. Daniel Goleman and Richie Davidson, two, uh, I mean, these guys were rubbing elbows with Ram Dass and Timothy Leary back in, the, back in the 70s at Harvard. And so they wrote this great book that just came out on the healing benefits of meditation. And what they say in the book and the findings were simply that this is after years, decades of, you know, they would bring like, do you know who Matthew Ricard is by any chance? Mm -hmm. So Matthew Ricard is considered one of the most advanced 
Buddhist monks and they would bring him in and they would hook up his head to an fMRI and they would start looking at brain scans and EEGs and all these things. And so what they found was that um, meditation in itself didn't produce an analgesic effect like taking an aspirin or taking ibuprofen. I can't eliminate the physical pain, but what I can become is aware of the pain. And the awareness of the pain allows me to look as a non-identification of the pain. And I was noticing that before I even read this book or even realized that. And now I'm reading the book and I'm thinking to myself, this just felt right. It just felt like I was, when I was in meditation during that time when I was getting, you know, all healed and fixed up, I was, I, I told you how I would look at energy and the white light and whatever I could sort of focus on in that sense, but that in and of itself helped me to find those little gaps in consciousness because now I'm not thinking about, you know, what's for lunch or where am I going to go for my next, you know, meal or whatever it is, you know, it's like, so it was extremely helpful in just in, in doing that. And I had to have a traumatic event, I feel like, to, to be able to go down that path. But I don't think that you necessarily have to have, not everyone needs to have a traumatic event. Right? Everybody's path is totally different, Completely. you know, and our exhaustion of our behavior patterns are going to look different and those behavior patterns are going to look different. Yep. And I do believe that we are all headed in this direction. It's just, yeah. it's just, it's whatever your timeline is, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and I know that I came into this world with what I live now because mm. I felt it for a very long time, yeah. but I didn't have anyone to teach me how to use it. And so I was just talking to a Kundalini teacher the other day about like the power, like I felt very, very powerful as a toddler. Mm. I felt really powerful mm. and your and that power can go to the light or it can go to the dark. That's right. And it went to the dark because yeah. I didn't, so it went and identified with the ego world and you know, that power was winning and, you know, all of that. And so, yeah. and now it's, it's now I'm bringing in, it's been in the light for a long time now yeah. and then just letting it build and build and build and keep pulling that energy yeah. in. Yeah. The thing about pain, I would test this out in races. Like when I was feeling a lot of pain, like on the marathon of an Ironman, yeah. I would bring all of my awareness. And this is years and years and years of training my mm. mind, mm. you know, my mind now can sit in just being. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's busy, but I'm getting more and more of that where my faculty of my mind is on board mm -hmm. and my will is on board. Yeah. And so I can just be. Yep. And so I would test this out in races where I would feel extreme pain, let's say in my foot, and I would bring all of my awareness, 100% right to my third eye center yeah. and move it away from that. And I would not have the pain. Yeah. And as soon as I would bring, I would say, okay, now back to the foot. And sure. as soon as I would go back to the foot, the pain would blow up. Yep. And it's, and so this is the same thing I think with, with our thoughts, mm. you know, if we have a negative thought and we just keep, we just keep circling around with that negative thought, negative thought, yeah. we're going to create more negativity in our life. If we can move our awareness away and, and again, like, I don't want anyone to think that they have to stop their thoughts when they sit to meditate yep. because that's what mm -hmm. the, the mind is a thinker. It's an analyzer. It's a judger. It's a discerner. It's yeah. what it does. We were just never taught how to use it. Right, right. And the training, I believe, is the training of the awareness to yep. where we want it to go. And then what happens in my experience is that the mind says, oh, wait a minute. Look at all this awareness over here. Mm -hmm. I'm not being paid attention to. I'm going to go to where the awareness is. Yeah. And then the mind starts to become... Um, for the lack of a better word, the servant, as opposed to us being the servant to the mind. Sure. 
And, um, and I think that that's, you, you can get into this, you create this gap when you just allow your thoughts to be, but you're pulling it away. So whether you're, I love your visualization of the sky with the clouds, mm. your awareness is on that sky and the clouds, not necessarily on the thoughts. Mm. Thoughts are still there, mm-hmm. but you're allowing them to move through. Yeah. And so you're not feeding them. And you're realizing in this gap, because there's a gap between what you're seeing and what you're thinking, in that gap, you see that those are not you. Yeah. Those the, thoughts are not you. They are not you. Yeah. I mean, you're, you, you know, That's, so... Life transformative yeah, right there. Yeah. So you've, you've touched on a few things. And so I want to talk about um, sort of my idea of how I, I, I took a theory of pervasive suffering from the Buddhists. The idea being that the pervasive suffering that you create is the feeling about feeling bad about something or the feeling about feeling something, right? So if I were to just to... If I were to just completely go off kilter and start calling you guys names and just acting out and swearing at you, it would be completely out of character for me to do that. And I would feel as though, you know, I, 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 might, I might feel your retribution by saying, you know, you've shown me the door, you know. But, but the feeling about that feeling is where the pervasive suffering occurs, right? And yes. so I've tried testing this in, 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 in my athletic world, um, in my athletic life, by just recognizing if I'm doing a hill interval, let's say, like I said, let me give this a try and look at this pervasive suffering where I have a feeling behind the feeling. It's like a, if I feel bad about feeling bad, well, there I go again, you know, telling these people off for some whatever reason, you know, and it's completely out of character. So I'm on the bike and I'm doing an interval and all of a sudden I can feel this pain and I identify that, ah, there's some pain, there's some awareness there. You're still going to feel the legs filling up with mm-hmm. lactose and mm-hmm. all this good, lactic acid and all this yeah. good stuff. But you're centering your attention and your awareness just on that feeling behind it, which is, ah, there it is. I, there's that good old pain again because I know I'm going up a hill. And I think I've actually learned to kind of push through that a little bit, but we'll see. I mean, I haven't raced yet. So this season yet. So, so that, that's the first thing. And then I think you were talking about, you you mentioned the self. And so just quickly on the self, the concept that we can move away from the self or the ego seems daunting, but yet it's so simple. You know, it, it truly is through mindfulness in meditation, it truly is something that you can transcend. You can transcend the ego. There is no amigo in ego. You can transcend it to a point where you learn compassion and empathy, mindfulness, by just not thinking about yourself. And the idea behind the meditation, as I said earlier, is that if you focus enough just on the awareness of your thoughts coming in and going out with no attachment to them. That's where the self drops out. And so back to the book I was telling you about altered traits, they talk about altered states and altered traits. And I love this analogy. The altered state is what I get when I'm sitting in meditation, a feeling of calmness, of being relaxed, of being aware. However, the altered trait is the important aspect of it. It's where I take that mindfulness out of my 
off my cushion and into the real world. And, and so I've been asked, you know, well, what is it that meditation does for you in, in the most sense? And I, I think it's just the half-life of, of what we experience every day. And so the perfect example, you know, you're, you're driving along the interstate and somebody cuts you off and immediately the bird goes out the window. You're, you know, you're tirade of, right? And so the half-life of doing that is through mindfulness where you have the ability to be aware that for whatever reason, they're rushing to the hospital, or they're just a complete asshole, or they've got some. There's something else going on that I have no control over, and I have no intention to know. So therefore, I'm just better off just kind of minding my own business or whatever it might be. And I mean, so so the altered state and the altered trait is kind of the the the, the you know that that dichotomy that they talk about in the book, which I think is really interesting. The um, altered traits are. I've been running this mindfulness and meditation group, co-facilitating it for the last, we started with a 21 day challenge in November mm. and then we were like, we can't stop. Mm. So we did another 21 day. We started on tw day 22. Now we just started our next. So some people are on like their 46th day today. Yeah, they're of probably wondering, well, how did we get into this? It's, what are it's you doing? So, you it's me so unbelievable what yeah. we've been seeing, but we're seeing these altered traits. Yeah. And so we have new people in this group who are now like, what, four days into meditating and they're ha some of them are having a tough time and we're, yeah. we're like, tell us, uh, tell us it all. Tell us the bliss, tell us the challenges, tell us the frustrations yep. so that we can support them through it. And what I keep saying over and over, and, I'm, and I've experienced it and I'm seeing it through the people who started on day one and who are now on day 46, is the altered traits. Yeah. And that the benefits, in my experience, the benefits of meditation my practice didn't show up first on the pillow. Mm -mm. It showed up in the grocery store line. Right. It showed up when I got cut off. Yeah. It showed up when I was running late to teach a class. Yeah. It showed up when, you know, they screwed up my order at a restaurant. Yeah. None of that stuff mattered anymore. It doesn't. Yeah. And for somebody who always had to win and be in charge and be in control mm. and be, have the last word, yeah. that's a significant life change from sitting on a pillow every day. Yeah. Everything in my life started to shift and I'm seeing that with these folks who have been doing it consistently and it's just it's amazing yeah. and just in telling the new people like don't worry you sat for 5 minutes and it was you say it was a nightmare Awesome. No effort is a waste. Mm -mm. Have you read the Bhagavad Gita? I have not read the Bhagavad oh. portions of it. Dude, I know the goods. I was just reading it this morning. I yeah. always have it. I, I, I have, yeah, I haven't given it a, a full, a full matter of attention, but yeah, I, will, I'm familiar it with will come to yeah. you. It will yeah. like, I, I, like, I, I, I go now to SRF and I get my little, you know, my Sunday sermon and I get my little dosage of it a bit. But, yeah. It's so yeah. good. And, uh, but anyway, one of the things, so many bombs of wisdom in there but you know no effort on this path is a waste there's no mm, effort and i think it's the same thing as an athlete like no yeah. like Work go out, out and, and yeah. get through those crappy workouts yeah they're they're not a waste yeah you know your watch even if your watch and data isn't exactly what was prescribed like just detach from that right and do the work <laughs> yeah the results will come. They will come. Down and, the road. and it's cumulative effect. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You just sit there and do the work. Yeah. And, but but I think we're in this mentality now of like you have the watch and you've got the sixty minute workout and you have to hit these target heart rates and mm. and if you don't, that's failure. Yeah. And it's I was, not. I was just I was just having a conversation with someone, a friend of mine before I came over here, and she was talking about how she goes through the same thing where it's like it used to be 
she would go to the gym or go on a run and had to burn X amount of calories or do this or whatever, what, you know, whatever there was like an end goal. And that's not necessarily living in the present moment. You know, I mean, the time in and of itself is the delusion. You know, there is no past and there is no future. There truly is not. I mean, to, to, to realize that is it's a liberating experience. And so she was talking about this and the paradigm shift came when she said that it, no matter what, if I'm just present in the moment and I have the right intention and I'm a huge believer in just intention and action, the workout becomes better. No matter what happens, if I don't meet the goal, then I still feel okay about myself and I know that there's always tomorrow. And so I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm deeply interested in how mindfulness can help athletes as it relates to, you know, setting goals. And I'm using my air quotes again here. I think that if we operate in a manner of just being simply in the present moment, that the results will come. And I'm looking forward to testing this. And I'm looking forward to talking to more athletes about this too. I mean, I've been thinking about, you know, podcasting myself and talking about um, how does it help the athlete to just be in the moment? Do athletes stay in the moment? I mean, we talked about this at the the beginning of the podcast where in in positive psychology, they call it flow or being Mm -hmm. in the zone, right? And so the concept being that you're so engrossed in your sport or your work or something that you're you're not thinking about anything else that's happened in the past or the future. You're simply in the moment. And to be in the moment, you know, through through our sport or whatever, you can use that as a blueprint for life. I believe you can. I believe that you can look at things like when you look at the tree, Jess, and you tell me that there's other elements that I potentially may not see, you know, now I don't know how advanced you are in the, you know, 11 dimensions of string theory and you see things that I don't and multiverses and all this stuff, we can get into that. We will not get into that, but, (laughs) but it's interesting to think about that. I mean, it's not just science, it's just awareness. You know, I mean, science can tell us some things and I'm a sciencey guy. I mean, I, I go to the empirical side of things a lot and I'm happy to do that. But I also have to take a flyer sometimes and just know that some things are just of the, of the you know, just the, the idea of ontology or epistemology is interesting to me because I can't pinpoint a mathematical equation about consciousness or I can't pinpoint, you know, science on awareness. I just have to have some trust, maybe some faith mm-hmm. and to be able to sit quietly to, 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 you know, kind of build the, you know, that, that neural correlate in the brain that allows you to do that. I mean, there is interesting science that say, that says, that talks about the relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And the more we sit in meditation, the less that, that relationship needs to happen. And so we're not quick to snap judge. We tend to, we don't live an emotionless life, but we just don't need to have, you know, live in this world of discursive thought or have anger or have aversion. And so it, it changes it, your brain. It has it absolutely changed it my brain. Does. And that's if we've learned anything from science is that the, the brain is plastic. It can mold and neural pathways can open and others can close. Right. And we have 
100% control over that oh, as individuals. Like yeah. this is our free will yeah. that we can mold our brains. But again, we were never taught this in, in school, mm -hmm. how to nullify a negative thought pattern. Right. We were never taught that. Yeah. And so it's people like you and me and BJ and like this huge mindfulness movement that is now out there creating new teachers yeah. and those teachers will, cause we're all teachers, but I, I've been thinking about this idea of science. Cause when I think about everything as energy, to me, it feels like it's all science, mm -hmm. but because the scientists were studying it from the human mind, mm -hmm. we don't have the ability to fully comprehend the science of consciousness yeah. because we have limiters right. being because we live in this ego world. Right. Well, so here's an example. Like, so if, I, if you were to, if I were to go to like quantum mechanics, I couldn't tell you the first thing about quantum mechanics. I don't profess to understand it. I don't, I'm not a mathematical guy, but if you, if you, or, or string theory, if you were to come to me and tell me there's, parallel universes, multiverses, and I would say, well, prove it. And you began to show me what a Calabria Yao is. You're looking at me like, are you nuts? You know, well, string theory has defined something smaller than a neuron or smaller than an atom or whatever it might be. And I have to trust your judgment. I have to trust that you know mathematics mm -hmm. and you've come to a a mathematical equation that can explain string theory. I don't have to be okay with that. I just have to trust that, I, that science will tell us certain things about the world. It's not going to tell you anything about how you think about the world. So, you know, it could be, yeah, like you were saying, Jess, you know, it's like you have to, the, the scientist that's doing the science is a conscious person mm -hmm. that's thinking and doing these things and they're subjected to errors and misperceptions and emotions and all these things too. Yeah. And so, I, and yeah. so I'm, I'm looking something up on my phone. Um, it reminds me of this Ted talk I saw with this, I got to get what he is, but his name is Alexander Tassaris. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Mm. Um, and he is, I just want to get what he is. Um, is he a cosmologist? He is very smart. <laughs> he's very smart. <laughs> how, how smart yeah. does that sound? He's really, he's, he's, very he's smart. wicked smart. Wicked smart. He's wicked smart. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to put the link to the TED Talk in the show notes. Cool. Because essentially it's about how life begins, the mm. human life begins. Yeah. And basically it, it, it takes you all the way up to the point mm. where science can't explain. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. And and he basically is saying like, there's, there's something beyond yeah. this divine mm. that our human mind, our, our intellect cannot explain yet. Right. But science keeps getting, the, the, the thing is, is that, that science keeps, it keeps growing it does. and it keeps going up another level. So it's so, I love science because yeah. number one, it's got our backs as mindfulness people yep. and because people like their data. And, um, but it keeps, I keep watching it. I keep watching them discover new planets. Mm. I keep watch them discover like right now there's more light shining on the earth than ever before. Yep. The new stars, new chakras, 
Like there's way more than, than seven. Well, think about, yeah, I mean, think about in cosmology, you know, think about the theory of inflation that, you know, the universe is continuing to expand and, and, and there is no, I mean, I, I think I heard it best, uh, Tegmark said that space, the term space is now the parlance, it's so like old school. It's now, when we think about the universe, we think about it as vast. That there's just literally, and I think about consciousness in this way, and I've actually drawn parallels to my own consciousness as just the theory of it being infinite and vast, and that there is no beginning and no end. And so, you know, when you look up into the night sky, you're looking back as far as light has traveled to us. The, the, the idea that there's something beyond it to a point that it ends is probably unlikely. I mean, you could, if you had all the money in the world and the largest telescopes, you still can't see past 13 billion years of light that it's, have finally gotten to us. So, you know, you can send Voyager out there and it can continue and I hope it does. And it's so interesting to think about these things, but it's just like, you know, I think it was like, I was watching a documentary about Voyager and, and one, of the, one of the scientists or some, one of the people at JPL on the, pro, on the project was talking about taking a straw, a drinking straw, and pointing it into the night sky and looking through that drinking straw, just that tiny little hole, you're looking at thousands of galaxies which contain trillions of stars. So let me say that again. If you look through the <laughs> drinking straw, that small little point of light, those little cluster of stars just in that little straw, you're seeing thousands of galaxies that contain trillions of stars. So what does that say when you move the straw away? The idea of that is what equals vast. And that just gives me the chills just thinking about that. And I, I believe it's all consciousness. And so how could we ever, we could never measure that. There's no finite point, yes. right? And so... But getting, it's all within us. And so getting back to the important things for the listeners that are probably thinking that we're off on this, the, like... I know. You Thank know, you for the, bringing it back. The Neil deGrasse Tyson club <laughs> of, like, you know, hack cosmologists. <laughs> we're getting on the Voyager at five. Yeah. But the idea, I think, gets back to, again, how, how, can, we, how can we dilute this down to something simple? The idea of self is an, an illusion and that... We have a pure consciousness in that through mindfulness, we can find the gaps in the thought that happened in our meditation that actually feel, it, it feels like something. And that's the whole theory. You know, Thomas Nagel said, you know, what does it feel like to be a bat? You know, I don't know what it feels like to have the, the if, if a bat feels some way or has some feeling of consciousness, I can't relate to it, but it still doesn't mean it isn't conscious. And so he wrote this paper about this. And so it's just thinking about that is really interesting because it's, it's, the, it's the transcendence of the self and the ego, I think that are the most important things. I mean, when we remove the idea of self, then separation it's it's just yeah, yeah that, that, that we're separate that you and i are separate yes that bj and i are separate when i sit in meditation and feel that consciousness i know i'm feeling the same consciousness that you're feeling there's an inner connectivity there yeah and that lends itself to compassion and it lends itself to empathy and it lends itself to thinking of others and the more we think about others the less we think about ourselves 
How do you think that compassion and empathy, yep. as com- as three competitive athletes here yep. in the kitchen, yep. how could compassion and empathy help assist an athlete in their in their evolution? Yeah. So it's important to that's you know so something I was thinking about when we were talking early before we started. It's important to make you know to kind of create a definition. So compassion being simply an awareness of a thought or a feeling empathy is the actual feeling right so i mean there's a philosopher paul bloom makes an argument that empathy isn't necessarily a good thing and the reason that he says this is that if you go out and you break your leg on your ride and i pull up alongside you bj what happened i broke my you know John, I need some empathy. All right, let me get into that empathetic mode and start feeling that. I'm not doing you any good and I'm not doing myself any good. So this idea of empathy, and I don't want people to think that I'm not, I'm not raining on empathy, but I'm saying that the difference between it is just a minor tweak of the dial. So that if I'm compassionate, I still have meta. I still can have loving kindness, a feeling of goodwill and good nature and still be of use to you as opposed to being empathetic and now I feel this way and now I'm feeling that way and how much better have I become, right? So it's just like it weighs you down. So compassion, I think, in sport seems to me, and again, I've got to couch this and say, I just, I don't know enough about psychology, you know, so I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a, a master meditator, but when I think about meditation as it relates to compassion, loving and kindness, I think it could transfer into sport in a few different ways. I'm still going to be a fierce competitor. You know, dare I use the word fierce. I'm still going to have the right intention and the right action. My intention is to win, but I can also be compassionate as an athlete before the race, see my competitors as just simply competitors or people like me with the same goal in life. And the Dalai Lama says it best in that, and most contemplative thinkers or Buddhists would say that the, the goal in life is simply to be happy and free of suffering. I want my competitors to be free of suffering. I don't want my competitors to break a leg or an arm, have a crash, to feel as though they didn't succeed by not winning if I can feel that, then I think that I'm generating more goodwill, more good nurture and nature into the community of sport. Absolutely. And you're, yeah. you're bringing a higher vibration to go back to energy. That is yeah. a higher vibration. And I think in competitive sports, the ego is alive and well, that that's my competitor. That's the person I got to, I got to, mm-hmm. I got to beat, you know, like they're, they're separate from me. Or you pull into transition at an Ironman and everybody's got like a great bike and maybe you have a crappy bike and all of a sudden you feel less than. Now what, and let me interrupt you for a second and say, so what happens when you get into that race and you said that the ego says that I've got to do that? And what happens when you don't win? What happens when you don't reach that goal? Where does the ego go? Well, it goes to places that we just don't like to be in. Right. What if you were to go into it with the intention with right, with right intention and right action, I'm speaking like a Buddhist, but to go into that with the goal of either to help the team, to win the race, 
you know, like you have this intention that the outcome should be the best positive thing for you, but I'm not attached to it. Well, there you go. Detachment. And it's the attachment that we should, we should, we should, we should all well do. Um, Stephen Hagen wrote in Buddhism, plain and simple. We should, and I, and I've taken this to my business, which has helped me even more. And I've seen real results from this, but he basically said that we should never lose sight of the intention and the action to do well for ourselves and our family and what these things give us a good life and what we would define as a good life. But we should also not create an attachment to the expectation or the outcome of what those said intentions and actions might produce. So I don't necessarily have to go into a bike race thinking it's all or nothing, you know, the win at all costs type of thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It can be simply that my intention and my action, I've trained, I have the confidence to know that I've done everything that I can do, and I'm going to go into this in that mindset without, without an attachment to the expectations. So I have a question for you. I want to get your take on this because I certainly know what my take is. Yeah. Um, what do you say about like, well, you got to go in there and you got to be angry yeah. and you got to get your motivation from being angry and that's how you're going to win. I've heard that before and I just don't like being angry. I just like operating just from a level of like, this is really fun. Like I've, you know, like I, I, I'm thinking about like wearing a costume to my first race and just making you laugh and then like tearing it off on the climb and just smashing it, you know? But no, I just don't know that I don't personally know that I've never, I can't point to a result where anger was my motivation. My best races and my best results have always gone in with the expectation being just simply low. Sometimes I've gone, and this is, you know, pre-mindfulness and a little bit of post-mindfulness. And sometimes I, you know, I've just gone in with the intention of just having fun and being just in a generally neutral, non-discursive way of thought. I don't want a lot of thoughts swimming around in my head. I want to just focus. I want to get into flow. That's okay. Like, I think getting into that state is a wonderful way to be. You How know? would you define flow? How would you define that somebody fall into flow? Um, being completely consumed with just the action that you're in, in, in involved in. That's with, it. With yep. nothing else. There's no... If I'm racing a criterium and I'm doing lap after lap after lap of a downtown city street and I've got 90 minutes of it, my mind might wander from time to time or, oh, look at the, look at the puppy dog or, hey, there's an ice cream shop or, you know, it's whizzing, whizzing by, right? But when we start to kind of get down to the part where this is five laps to go or whatever it might be. I'm just, and this is just a very general, this isn't how I race criteriums, by the way. So anybody that's listening that races against me. <laughs> that's a strategy. Now we know. I'm in flow from the, from the sound of the gun to the end. No, but you know, it's, 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 it's impossible. I would challenge anyone just to sit quietly for a minute and try and just not have any thought. You can't do it. I don't care how much you meditate. And so again, we got back to like, the goal of meditation isn't to just have no thought, it's to be aware, right? So in flow, if I'm doing that said race and it's five laps to go, I am now completely engrossed in this bike race. 
I am now utilizing all of my skill, all of my, all of that neuroplasticity that I, that we talked about earlier, the, the, you know, the training, the previous racing, those neural correlates and the patterns of my brain in which they're firing that I know that if I'm going through a corner at 30 miles an hour, I've got to hold my line. I can't be wildly like turning the wheel or, you know, whatever it might be. And if an attack goes up the road, my instincts tell me that I've got to go cover that attack because I've got a sprinter back there that's going to win the bike race. There are a million things that could happen and there are a million things that could go wrong. I'll give you one fun example. This past September, I went back to the race that I was intending on doing prior to getting hit the Green Mountain stage race in Vermont, a beautiful race, four day stage race. Last day is the downtown Burlington Criterium. Awesome race, technical seven corner through town. My, my race plan was to, to get an early breakaway because I'm more of a breakaway rider than a sprinter. And if that didn't stick, attack on the last lap because I had had some experience in years past where I almost won the race but lost it to someone that had attacked on the last lap. And my fitness was good and I was racing well and I get better and better as the days go by. That's just like the physiology of me is just that. So I knew that I was going to be good. With one lap to go, I put the plan into action. A rider went off the front. I immediately, I was sitting maybe fifth wheel going through the start finish line. Get the bell lap, lap card, you know, the counter on the digital clock. One to go, one lap to go. This is where all it comes into play. So rider goes off. I go with him, we go through the first corner, we go around the second corner, we go up the slight uphill, and he just completely dies, and I drop him. I take the next hill, downhill, through the last corner, I've got the race won. I'm probably at least 10 seconds up the road. I mean, and you know, I got this little riser, and then I come across start finish line. So I'm like, I can zip up the jacket, I can, you know, point to the sponsors, throw my arms up, all these things. Just as I'm getting to the line about 100 meters before, that lap card still says one. And immediately I'm like, I made a mistake. I went on the wrong lap. And just as I'm, I sit up, I look back, and here comes the field and whoosh, and they come right through. And it comes down to like a photo finish between first and second. And I get third and I was on the right lap, but the person that was in charge of changing the card never did. So what does that mean? So I trusted in every single instinct that I had and I knew that I was on that last lap, but I, I went off of some other information, not akin to what I normally would do, which is you sprint through the line, no matter what, no matter what, even if you think you're on the wrong lap, it's, amazing what the brain will do because what was I thinking I sat up and I'm like I have to go another lap maybe I can get back in maybe I can like okay recover you're not recovering I was all in I gave 110% to attack on the last lap I'm not gonna recover from that and so I ended up getting third and I was on the right lap but they made a mistake and so like I don't know so yeah Okay. What do we get out of that? Just, no, a, fun, just I, a fun story. No. Yeah. What? There's so much in there. Yeah. I think so many writers would have flipped out. Mm. 
that that was incorrect. Yeah. How did you handle that? How did my mindfulness come through? Yeah. Yeah. How did the mindfulness show up? So there's a video of it and immediately... (laughs) Of you ripping the card up. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And just like... Sitting on the guy. Attacking the guy. There's just so much in there. Like you were in flow and then you got distracted. Yeah. Yeah. Remind me to tell you offline about the story behind that because you guys are going to flip. When you can we put this. that on our Patreon you, extra you for can, our you, Patreon you totally supporters? Can. You okay. Totally can. Ooh, <laughs> yeah, so this will be good. Um, so yeah, how so you yeah, deal so with there, that? So there was a video of somebody had the GoPro, and so I immediately just—I didn't get angry, but I was confused. I turned. I was like, I turned, and they came through, and I was like, it says one to go. That's you can hear me saying, and I'm pointing like I'm you know like no handed, and I'm like, it says one to go. You can hear me saying that. And then that was it. I was just like, okay, the next logical thing to do would be to, and, and I'm a big believer, by the way, in like, what is the next, like if, you, if you, whenever, you, whenever you're confused, what is the next right action? So for me, it, it simply was like finding out what had happened. So on the cool down lap, I come back through, I find the chief judge, USA Cycling chief judge, I say, I think we have a problem because that card still says one to go. And I was the race leader coming through and he kind of, okay, he's conferring with the person that's on the computer. It's a digital card and he's on the, the behind the computer and he's looking and they, yeah, we didn't turn it. It's clear. You can see it there. You can see it in the video. And his answer was simply that it's the rider's responsibility to know what lap they're on. And I didn't, it probably didn't sit that well with me. And I said, I get it. But you know, like the brain of a bike racer, we look at what you're telling. I look at the time. I look at the laps that's there for, I mean, you you clearly have that. If, If that were the case, you'd ring a bell and just hope that everybody would just remember. But you've clearly got a system in place and I wanted them to hold, to uphold the system. And they didn't. Of course. Yeah, but what but I didn't spend but I didn't spend a lot of time like I was certainly I was disappointed. Wasn't angry, wasn't mad. I was just disappointed in the fact that I had I had made the mistake of just not trusting what I knew to be true, which was that I was on the right lap because I attacked. I knew it. Now, do you feel like that was a different John than a John 15 years ago? Oh my goodness, a different <laughs> John 3 years ago. Yeah. yeah, and this is this is a this is a great analogy in that it doesn't take much time, but for five minutes a day to just start in your meditation because I mean the incremental happiness and clarity and mindfulness that you get in just a short period of time. No, I mean I was just, you know, I mean yeah, the 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 the, the, the pre mind mindful John would have probably been tossed his helmet down on the ground, kicked the dirt cussed you know just been just a a selfish egotistical dick right what was the energy like of teammates and the and the people that saw it because you can totally jump in on well luckily i was all the way in vermont so i didn't have any teammates okay (laughs) (laughs) but i probably would have heard from somebody and said you did what because that's the challenge too when the people start and they get on your back and that's they're like, right. come on, you got to join in. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're not upset. If like, I were to, yeah, if I were to put myself, you know, the, you know, put my proverbial self out there and say that there were teammates there and that I was being confronted, I would have to just tell the truth. I did everything that I could. I, I made a mistake. 
I shouldn't have sat up. I and and I think that you know I've told my teammates this. You know I've told a couple of the guys, and everybody has a story like that. Everybody has missed a transition or you know didn't do done an extra lap, done an extra or, lap, yeah. or gone too soon. You know, like you go too yeah. soon and they're like, you got one more to go, and they're like, no, I don't. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's so, an out and back right there. It's yeah, like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think just uh, you know, and so that's a great analogy as to what mindfulness in sport can can do from how we think about ourselves as athletes how we think about our competitors and the communal group and the combined energy within sport there's a tremendous amount to be learned in just how we interact with others without even having to say words just through sport right and then how we behave to situations and so that cognitive side of emotion and what the brain will tell us to do and you know because snap judgment just gets us nowhere yeah and i i believe that there may be a a misconception that if you meditate you're going to just go soft and that's not true at all you can still be a like you said a fierce competitor but you're doing it through, and I, and I use this all the time, the right action. Right intention and right yeah, action. Yeah, right action and right intention. Have an and intention. such a big one. Absolutely. It's huge. Yeah. And, and what's that next logical step? And, and yes, maybe you, were, maybe you had some emotions, yeah. but you were like, okay, what's the next logical step? So it's the self-regulation yeah. that is actually like, and science has shown that this starts to become more pronounced in our brains as we meditate, is that we have this ability to self-regulate. Evolutionary psychology, you can't argue with it. I mean, have you ever read any of Richard Dawkins or, you know, some of these people that uh, Christopher Hitchens, these guys that talk about that we are equipped with emotions for the sole purpose of survival, passing on our genetics, not getting, you know, hit over the head with a rock by another ape. You know, I mean, so today these emotions don't necessarily serve us, but we're, it's part of our genetic code. You know, I mean, we are well adapted today you know our brains have grown the amygdala uh, you know produces emotions and effects on our brain and on our minds and on our behavior but the emotions don't necessarily suit us for when as we evolved right so there's like this really interesting a lot of interesting theories in just evolutionary psychology that talks about emotion and that we're not going to be free of it but the key again is to not attach to them if you attach to them, then you're believing a story that's just simply running through the projector of your mind. You know, it's just like sitting in a movie theater. You're sitting in a movie theater, lost in the movie flow. But if I really am honest, I'm actually sitting in a dark room in an uncomfortable chair with lots of people around me looking at light on the wall. I mean, like looking at your tree and looking at your leaf. You know, I mean, like looking at these things. So anyway... Yeah, it's, I, there's mindfulness in sport is just, it's blowing up and we see it and, you know, we've been doing this for a while and I remember not too long ago when nobody would want to talk to us about it, Mm -mm. you know, it'd be like, no, 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 no." like kind of like, oh God, here here come the yogi, like just look look the other way. Yeah, they're going to sprinkle fairy dust on us. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to make us do yoga. They're going to make us, yeah, and and, and, yeah, exactly. There's some, there's some like. You know, extra. They're gonna make some, us do yoga. There's some they still extra say ingredient. That. Yeah, there's some <laughs> extra ingredient in their water bottle. <laughs> yeah, they definitely yeah. say that they're gonna make us do yoga. Yeah. I know. I feel like sometimes at the run group I go to, like people don't want to run with me because <laughs> they think I'm gonna be like talking about yoga. 
But anyway, but then they want to know, like, how did you do that set? And you were so calm. Yeah. And I say, come to yoga and I'll yeah. teach you. Yeah. So, oh God, I feel like we could go all night. Uh, and I want to know how, um, how are things going with Joe J Bar? Because I know they're yeah. over at Endurance House. And like I said, I've been snacking on them like crazy. Yes, you have. And you are unbelievable. You just brought us a box. And we are just... Grateful. We know what we're having. For, <laughs> we know what we're having for dinner tonight. Approximately nine hundred and thirty calories. Yes. Three of them. Yeah. Thank so you make very them much. make them a healthy dessert. Yeah. What's happening with uh, it? I mean, yeah. Jess and I are. We started the new year off with a lot of energy and a lot of good momentum. Yeah. So there's some big things happening with Joe J. I think, and uh, I'd be remiss to talk about it now because I'm a big believer in kind of keeping things close to the chest as a business person, but also just when things aren't necessarily, well, hello, Clark. Hey, Clark. How are you? Hey, buddy. Off, buddy. So he likes judging. Yes, he does. He's like judging. So yeah, no, so things are going wonderfully. I mean, we are really hitting our stride. We're starting to create some brand awareness. We're starting to be specified in a lot of stores, grocery stores and shops are asking for us. It's a really good feeling, you know? I mean, it's it's been a lot of hard work and we're in, we're in some transition right now. And so that's some interesting, as kind of from a production side of things, you know? So that's been interesting where we were able to scale up. We had a, success, a successful Kickstarter campaign that we finished out the year. I, I just can't say enough about just how having a little bit of mindfulness in business can really help and goes back to the Hagen quote that I talked about where you just don't attach to expectations, but you just simply, you know, I used to get so hung up in the business world about why aren't they calling me back? Why aren't they accepting what I'm giving them? Don't they know? Who do I think I am? Don't they know who I am? You know, and it never has anything to do with them. It never does. I mean, on the 1% chance that they just don't like the way I look or the way I talk or whatever it might be, then fine. And that's probably not a good relationship. But more often than not, buyers are busy, people are busy, but it doesn't mean that I can't keep emailing you every couple weeks asking for the order until you tell me no, right? And so there's right intention and having right action. Just do the next right thing. And, and, and don't have the attachment to the business side of things where I have to have it or otherwise the, the house of cards comes down. No. There are a million places we can sell these delicious bars. So I just keep kind of packing the pipeline full of opportunities and they just start to come as they do. Yeah, I mean, and that's yeah. that's working with along right alongside with universal law, you know, and, and so we put out that right intention, but then we pull that intention back when we say, well, why aren't they calling me back? And then we, sh- we shun mm-hmm. it with negativity. Sure, so the next time they do, call you back, then they get this person on the other end that they didn't recall speaking to in the very beginning because now you have your attitude has been adjusted. You now feel as though you've got, you didn't call me for two, you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. right? So it's that energy. It's just that simple energy, you know? And, And I like to have an element of compassion in the business world. I know we've got a million competitors out there. People are like, there's such, it's such a crowded space. How are you doing it? You know, and it's like, I have compassion for my competitors. I know what we do well. I know what our niche is. I, I, I market that to the best of my ability and that when we tell our story, but we're not gonna be everything to everyone, right? And I want my competitors to do well because the more people that are eating bars, the better we all are. There's millions of people. It's like a $10 billion industry. And I'm not foolish to think that like just having a small little sliver of that is just 
I could live a, I could live a good life doing that too. Yeah. And to be, you know, to not, to, to, to not have that mindset about your competitors mm. develops a, an aware, a, a belief that in lack, like, well, there's not enough to go around. I'm not. And then now what does that do? Right. So if Creates everything fear, is energy and anxiety, and, yeah, yeah. And so that's exactly where you're going to get back. You're going to get lack back. Yeah. And, but if you keep with that right intention, yeah. that just unwavering faith, you keep moving forward. What is that next logical step? Keep it fun. Keep your heart in it. Yeah. Remember where it came from. Remember who you're in this with and the people that you get to connect with from it and, and you keep moving forward. Well, we're going to hire you to write our, our, our bio, our, 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 <laughs> our, our corporate ethos. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Done. Yes. Done. Yeah, but thanks for asking. It's been it's been a great. You know, we're having so much fun, and you know, Jess is back to racing again, so it'll be fun to you know sub- we're going to support the team, her team, and I saw that some other teams, Very cool. you know, and some clubs, and so Wait, yeah, I saw Win Republic, cool. Win Republic too. Win, yep, Luke's company. Yep, yeah. we're going to be working with them. We're right, we cool. already are, and some of the athletes are starting to to tell the tales of training with our bars, and so it's awesome. been fun. Yeah, really, really cool. I'm so psyched uh, for you guys. You. I think you're gonna. Ha- I'm feeling like. 2018's like bringing it. I think so. Yeah, in a really good way. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Cool. I'm so glad you're here. I'm, I'm so glad, glad to be that, here. It was nice yeah, to you guys. So yeah. I feel like we could go all night. Yes. Off the rails, baby. Yes. Off the rails. Yeah, yeah. All right, awesome. Awesome pod with John. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please check out the show notes for all the details on how to connect with him. We are in deep thanks of your support, you guys. I say it all the time, and I just I hope you can feel how love-filled this thanks is. So please check out our Patreon page and become a patron. You will get sneak peeks, exclusive yoga practices, and podcast extras like the one we have with John that's going to be going up later this week. Leave a review on Apple Podcast and share how this show is assisting you in making changes in your life. And congrats to Andrea and Chad, winners of two times you compression run socks. So Andrea and Chad reach out to us via any of our social outlets or through our website, yogitriathlete.com with your mailing address, and we'll get those out to you ASAP. We had planned to give away three pairs, but can you believe it? Only two reviews in January. Now, you guys are awesome. We know you're super busy and we appreciate every time you choose to tune in. So that's it, my friends. That is it for this week. We've got some more totally kicking episodes in the queue, so stay tuned. But until then, remain awake and ready so that you may continue to crush your goals without indulging energy sucking vibes like negative thought, self doubt fear, or anxiety. We are all worthy of joy. This is our divine right. And we are fired up to have you with us on the path. This warrior path doesn't mean that we won't have intensities or challenges in our life, but the difference between a warrior living awake and ready and the rest of the human population is that we have the tools to choose away. We have the courage to live at higher vibrations, and we have the bravery to pick up the next breadcrumbs on our path to living the life of our dreams.